This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. Hello, and welcome to Marketing Trends. This is producer Ben Wilson. This episode of Marketing Trends features an interview with Thomas Buda. Tom is the CMO of SignalFX and has had a long career in tech marketing. After a number of years working for advertising agencies, Tom went to work as the CMO of Red Hat and has been in the technology world ever since. On this episode, Tom discusses challenger brands, how to cut through noise, and how to make your brand an industry thought leader. Enjoy. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot, B2B marketing automation on the world's number one CRM. Are you ready to take your B2B marketing to new heights? With Pardot, marketers can find and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast, or click on the link in our show notes. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And across from me in studio in sunny Palo Alto, Tom, what's going on? Well, it's great to be here, and it's also great to have the sun out today. We've been having a lot of rain here, so it's a great studio, by the way. Thank you. We appreciate it. And you're here local. You live in Palo Alto, so what a what a good fit. I am. I'm uh, I'm hoping to make this a regular stop as part of my tour of Palo Alto. Yeah, no, indeed. We are really excited about the episode today. You have a background as a challenger marketer. We'll get into what that means the type of companies that you've worked for. We will talk about how to take over the incumbents when you might not think you have the advantages that you do, uh, what it's like building startups as a marketer in Silicon Valley, and much, much more. But first, how'd you get into marketing? Uh, I suppose I was actually born into it. My dad is an animator. Uh, oh, no like, kidding. Yeah, like uh, you know Disney-style cartoon animation. And he, uh, he built a production company that did a lot of animated commercials, like the Hawaiian Punch, Punchy character, no and the Frito Bandito, and yeah, Hostess Cupcakes. And he also uh, did some specials for uh, Sesame Street. I think he produced the episode that was sponsored by The Number Nine. No kidding. Yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah. Wow, that's really cool. And my mom- What a my, tradition. My mom was a writer- and worked at an agency in New York, you know, both New Yorkers, both born in Brooklyn, where I was born in Brooklyn as well. And uh, she worked uh, as a copywriter before I came along. Wow, that's really cool. Where in Brooklyn? In, uh, in Bensonhurst. Yeah, my, cool. uh, my grandparents had an Italian bakery. Great-grandfather, you know, started it, came over from Italy. Classic, classic story. Yeah, my, my mom grew up in, uh, in Brooklyn as well, off of... Uh... Yeah, off of 54th Street, I believe. So, yeah, my my family's spent a lot of time, obviously, like in Brooklyn, stuff like that. I just got back from there. Yeah, I like, I'd like to say I lived in Brooklyn before Brooklyn was cool. Yeah, right. Yeah, same with, yeah, same yeah. with my mom. Yeah. But that's cool. That's a, that's a legacy. That's kind of, kind of a big, uh, big uh, world to carry there on your shoulders coming from marketing. I feel like there's not a lot of marketers that actually, you know, it's the family business. Yeah. Well, it wasn't necessarily the family business, but early on as a, as a child in, um, in grade school, it was really cool to show off like what my dad did, you know, but like flipping through the cells that yeah. would show how a character would move, 
you know, it made for great show and tell. Yeah, one of my mom's, pay, our, our listeners are probably like, this is, what are you guys talking about? But no, one of my mom's patients, she was a nurse, was an animator for Disney. And it was the same sort of thing where she would have at home, she would have these like flip books, essentially, of her drawings of like all these different Disney movies and stuff. And it was just mesmerizing. I mean, it's it's just, it's a, a bit of a relic to the past, but it's so interesting because all of those stories still live on. That's the beautiful thing about animation is you can tell stories that last for a long time. These I mean, I see my niece and nephew watching Disney cartoons from, you know, like Steamboat Willie, like the first cartoon that still gets still gets watched today. That's probably done like, I don't know, five billion <laughs> views on that video or it, something like that. Exactly. My dad actually worked on the pilot film for Felix the Cat. That is crazy. Yeah. He, he and uh, 12 animators were in a one bedroom apartment in a studio kind of like this in New York. So yeah, he's he's been uh, he's been a great influence on me. So from there to technology, you've worked at a bunch of different companies. You had a stint where you were working at Andreessen Horowitz as the consultant in residence. Is that right? That's right. And you've been a CMO multiple times. How did you bridge into tech? So I I actually started out in uh, in advertising. My first job was at Young and Rubicam, which was a global agency at the time that built what they called the whole egg. <clears throat> they invested in all of these other marketing services, realizing that the spend in advertising was going to effectively be shifted into these other media, right? And I had a great training there and then went on to a, an agency in Boston called Hill Holiday, which won agency of the year and built some great campaigns. And I got to work on the Lotus business. People might remember Lotus Notes. Well, I worked on the Lotus business, uh, which was my first really entry into the technology space. Cut to years later, we started our own agency and grew it and ultimately took on more technology companies as tech became you know, more prevalent. And one of those companies that we started working for was this little tiny software company in the, uh, you know, as we used to call it, the tobacco fields of North Carolina called Red Hat. That's crazy. And as you know, Red Hat has just, you know, entered into an agreement to sell to IBM for like $36 billion or something crazy. Well, when I was there, there were 85 people and I felt like I was late. Yeah. Right. You know, when I was working with them, I was this agency guy and I was doing a lot of work for, for them trying to, you know, provide guidance. And then one day they said, uh, we'd love to, would love to see if you'd come on board. So I left a position as a CEO of a multifaceted marketing services company. We had seven LLCs. We had, you know, all these different businesses. And I just thought, wow, could this company and what it was standing for open right open source openness freedom and transparency could this be potentially as big as like what apple tried to do so i took it and red hat at that time this is pre.com boom right or this is in the middle of the dot-com boom but but pre-bus so this was something that literally millions of free users and all this sort of, I mean, it was like, this is the next big thing, right? Like the, the, the prevailing feeling there is like, wow, this is something that open source software, this is going to change the world. Well, that's what we felt, right? And yeah. there were two 
two and a half million quote unquote users who actually felt the same way. Those are people who were open source developers who downloaded our code and used it to make new applications and things. The problem was none of them paid anything, right? <laughs> and uh, we didn't have their their you know their email addresses. It's the freemium <laughs> model. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it wasn't quite that, but we did seed the market really well. Um, so the question was, how did we capitalize on their zealotry, as as it were, about like why open source was such a big deal, why it really made mattered relative to what was the conventional way of doing things, which is, you know, classic closed software. So Microsoft as like the most glaring, you know, leader in the space, uh, used to update their software like every couple of years. Mm -hmm. you, you can't imagine that happening today where you're getting updates. I mean, in some cases, like every 17 minutes, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's unbelievable to think that I, I just recently heard... Um, the founder of ServiceNow was talking about. You're probably on, you know, version 70.3 of Gmail or whatever it is, you know, like nobody knows. You just, it's secondhand. You just don't even think about it anymore. That's right. Well, that was so, it was pretty radical at the time to introduce this notion, right? And then you have all of these, <clears throat> these CIOs who were, you know, basically building their businesses around Microsoft software, right? For their servers and their desktops and everything else. So this was a fairly radical move. So here, you know, here's a story. We knew that we were onto something when we understood the power of what open source could do. Because the code was freely available and you were able to make updates and fix things as they occurred, it meant that there was massive stability. Yeah. Right. So one time the CFO, I think it was a FedEx or CIO of FedEx, you know, told us that you know, I'm really interested in what you guys are doing. I didn't know anything about it, but I was in the cafeteria one day having lunch and this guy with Birkenstocks and this South Park t-shirt, you know, and a nose ring, you know, come up to me and said, uh, hey, sir, uh, thank you very much for allowing us to use the old computers that we were going to give away. Uh, we've been running this, this server farm using and testing open source software. And he said, oh, yeah, I thought we were going to donate them to the church. And he said, well, yeah, we decided we were going to put them to use. And so he, he told them about how they use Red Hat Linux to run this email server using these old antiquated computers, right? And he said, well, wasn't that like a year and a half ago? And he, and he said, that's right. Well, how's it been doing? It hasn't crashed once. And so he said, wow, that's never the case. He said, well, you know, it's because it's, it's open source software and it's always continually updated. And so like from that moment, they just started expanding their experiments into more traditional businesses and they became one of the early pioneers. And that, I mean, that is basically cloud, right? Exactly. That is wild. Man, that's really cool. Who's, wait, so who is the person in the, who is the person in the, in the, t the South Park t-shirt. Well, it was just this, it was sort of the classic profile of what, you know, the early open source developers were like, you know, the engineers, developers. And uh, the other, if you went to any of our, if you went to our office, like the big thing was you'd see how many cans of soda, empty soda cans oh, yeah. were stacked on a desk, right? So. So you were, you were the CMO there, right? At Red Hat. And then you, you ended up leaving. What, I mean, what was the what was the impetus for for the move? 
again, I, from a brand standpoint, I, I saw huge potential and I think we set it in the right direction early. So we had a choice, right? Are we the most popular Linux operating system, right? Or are we the flag bearer of the open source movement? Yeah. And so by being the flag bearer of the open source movement, we really stood for something much bigger. You know, the challenger that we were was really pivoting against Microsoft, whom we actually never spoke about. But it was obvious to everybody, right, what we were standing for and who who we were competing against ultimately. This is like a lesson learned for me. And I think probably a lesson for a lot of other folks who come into, into the CMO role. And that is, I thought I knew a lot about Red Hat. I thought I knew a lot about the opportunity and how to position it. And I was, I was right about the positioning. I was right about how we built the brand. I was right about how we served the open source community and we stayed true to that community. What I completely missed was once I got inside, how technical everything was. And, you know, we were talking earlier about, you know, your colleague who's in Italy right now, and you go to some of these countries and, you know, they don't necessarily speak English all that well. And so you have to figure out how to communicate in this new language. Well, that's what it felt like. Like the conversations that, it was mostly like developers and engineers. The yeah. conversations that were taking place were using all of these, uh, you know, abbreviations and these terms that I had no basis for. Because you know, you saw my background, right? I mean, yeah. you came from agency world and exactly, and uh, working with definitely nothing like what this burgeoning tech community was talking about. That's right. Uh, that's right. And so I, I, you know, I didn't have an engineering degree. I had a fairly decent capacity for learning, but boy, did I have to learn a lot fast. And so ultimately, once we lifted this up after the first you know year and a half, two years, went public, grew globally, changed the business model to become a SaaS business. We originally were selling software on a CD-ROM or DVD in Barnes and Noble. <laughs> oh my goodness. Like, you know, and we were making no money, right? So we had to figure out how we can create a business effectively that revolved around redhat.com. There were, there were just a lot of big, big, big moves that needed to be made. And uh, once the once the the dot-com bust happened, it put a lot of pressure on just sort of focusing in on our core business and driving revenue. And it was clear that I, I think we needed somebody who is more of a product marketer yeah. than you know where I came from. So it was an interesting time because a lot of people got recruited to come to work at Red Hat from all over the world. And those first couple of years from a management team standpoint had massive churn. That's so interesting. And it's also interesting that, I mean, we could, we could probably do, yeah, we could probably do the whole rest of the episode on just the Red Hat experience because, you know, this is back in the day when Red Hat IPO'd and this is like 1999, right? So, I mean, this is, a totally different era of IPOs and how things were working than than now. But I think that 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 point is really salient that what needed to happen was either you need to become a product marketer or they needed a product marketer. But that was the stage that the company was at at that point in time. It's a really interesting insight. Do you, well, what okay. was also interesting and made, what made it really, really challenging was that 
we went public. We raised about $65, $68 million because the, the, the stock price climbed so fast and so high, we immediately did a secondary or a follow-on. And like we went out at 26 and we did the secondary at a split adjusted 90, so effectively 180. So within nine months, we raised uh, close to $500 million. Wow. On a company doing, you know, 15, 20, 25 to 50. So that it was- crazy. Yeah. Uh, so, so that was, you know, what was happening, except then when you looked at the operating budget and what our expenses were, my operating budget as a, for marketing on a business that was doing 10, 12, $15 million was nothing. So I had to figure out how to like capitalize on this, this global expectation that we had created and actually perform. Yeah. And now you're saying, okay, what's next quarter? Yeah. Are you like talking to the board? They're like, all right, what do you got for me? And you're like, what do you got for me? Yeah, exactly. What budget do you have for me? What can I actually do? So we had a great, you know, we had a great spokesperson in our founder, CEO chairman, Bob Young. Uh, He was a little bit folksy and he could tell a great story and he'd wear his red hat and his red socks. And so the the red hat became iconic for, you know, what, what we stood for, you know, and we got a lot of media coverage. So we were always... It was almost like a political campaign from a news standpoint. We were always willing to talk to the media and have a, an opinion about things that were happening. Um, so we had massive, massive coverage. I remember like my, one of my proudest moments was the Wall Street Journal in the marketplace section had an article with a map of the U.S. and it said the new, the new tech capital of you know, America. And it had you know, Silicon Valley, of course, and it had Boston, um, it had Austin, Texas, which was new. And then it had the Research Triangle Park yeah. in North Carolina. And on the RTP was the Red Hat. Oh, that's great. I'm like, oh, wow, we made it. <laughs> that's cool. Tell me a little bit about what you're working on at Signal FX right now. What is the scope of your responsibilities as CMO? Uh, so as CMO, I own everything from corporate marketing to product marketing to demand demand gen and partner marketing. So it's it's fairly comprehensive. It's kind of the classic purview. So having had the experience of the need to actually understand uh, technology deeply, you know, I've hired an excellent head of product marketing. I mean, clearly I've I've come a long way. Yeah, I've uh, come a long way. Yeah, in those days, but uh, still, years. yeah, but still, I've uh, I've got a great team. There, I've got a great demand gen team, a great field marketing and events team where we just, we do really well. We know how to leverage those types of investments. And yet I have, I have some history. So the creative director whom I met at Red Hat is now the creative director, design director at Signal Effects. And we've worked together along the years. That's one of those great lessons for, for all of our listeners that you might be in, it might be your first job in a marketing company. It might be your fifth job, might be your fifth time as a CMO, but it's amazing to see how those connections come back, you know, 19 years later that you're working together with that person again. And I think that that's the brilliant thing about, you know, definitely, you know, business in general, but uh, specifically when you look at like the Silicon Valley kind of like startup community for those of our listeners who aren't around this is that there's kind of no no black marks for 
trying and something not working out, the black marks are for being the person that nobody wants to work with, right? So if you are a person who's working hard and doing the right stuff, then there's a place for you. Then there's always going to be another company that is working on something really challenging that you can do. Well, there's there's always room for talent and you just have to figure out the way the the best ways to actually demonstrate that. I would say that I've been lucky in this experience to be able to literally build a, a, a team from scratch. Yeah. So there was one person that was in marketing when I when I got here. Oh wow, that's wild. Yeah, a year and a half ago, and now we have. I think we just hired our sixteenth person, and uh, handpicked every single one. You know, it's like I don't know. It's you don't get to choose your family, but imagine actually trying to choose the nuances of how people would work together. And I, I think we've built a really highly high functioning team that's extraordinary collegial. And we have we work really hard, but we also have a lot of fun. Do you think that I mean that's pretty rare that that a company would bring in a CMO as like, you know, first or second marketing hire at this kind of stage. Did you feel like this was part of the reason why you were so excited about it? Or, or what was, you know, I mean, this is obviously like a pr- pretty rare thing. I mean, you don't hear about it all the time. Yeah. So there's a few reasons why, why I joined. For, first, just to be clear, there had been other heads of marketing. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. There yeah. wasn't a CMO who churned out over the first couple of years. But I was, I was uh, attracted to this opportunity for two primary reasons. One, I had never gone to work for a company where I actually knew someone, like really knew them. Yeah, I've been recruited in, right? The red hat, pixie dust, everybody wanted, you know, a little bit of that. And I've been recruited in uh, to companies where I actually didn't know anyone. But the work that I needed to do was always the same, right? It just, I knew what I needed to do and I was gonna get it done regardless. In this case, I actually knew the person that they had just brought in as uh, he's now chief operating officer, Mark Cranny, whom I worked with at Andreessen Horowitz. I, wor- I did some work for him when he was at Opsware and we worked together at, at PTC in Boston. Yep. And so I know Mark really well. I know how good he is at building go-to-market teams. I know his discipline, his methodology, his playbook, and his personality. Yeah. Um, and so I felt like that was a great basis you know, of a, of a relationship that was important with all the right qualities. So that was one reason. The second reason is I just saw the massive opportunity. So it's interesting. I actually see signal effects as being the natural place for me to be after three points in my career. So open source, right? Red Hat and open source has completely changed how software gets developed such that today companies are really software companies right, even traditional companies. Mark Andreessen said, you know, software is eating the world. Well, he absolutely is true. That's absolutely true. And it's been enabled because of open source technologies and now microservice technologies, et cetera. Um, and we're at, signal effects is at the heart of that. My next experience was going to PTC and PTC was a CAD development software company that basically enabled many of the products that you and I use every day. Right, and yet it had huge success, but it sort of lost its way because it didn't have a follow-on next sort of next step. And in a post 9-11 environment, you know, people were, they just didn't see the value of investing behind product. 
only two of the Fortune 500 had a chief product officer. That is wild, really? And so, you know, this I knew this sort of enterprise-wide approach to product development would emerge, a category called product lifecycle management or PLM. This happened as I was there. And so what we did is we completely transformed the company to the leading supplier of product development software and the leader of the PLM space. And we did that by actually creating the playbook that taught companies how to win in the product development space and how to have the entire enterprise get involved. And this is one of these like things that I've been doing since then. So, you know, how do you rise above the noise in these cluttered categories? Well, you need to create, you need to be seen as a thought leader. Challenger brands have to be seen as thought leaders. 100%. And you need to create value. Because right now, everything's noisy. Everybody's saying, you know, the feature function, right? Everybody's got a story to tell. But what we did is we created something for the market. Like anybody could have used it, including our competitors. But we created something for our customers that didn't exist. And believe me, I looked around, right? We had the Boston Consulting Group working with us. They didn't have the playbook. I went to all the universities. They didn't have the playbook. The Gartners of the world and the Foresters of the world you know, the big analyst firms, they didn't have the playbook on how an enterprise could win in the product development game. And so we literally created a value roadmap on how to create and capture value from products. And that completely shifted the conversation. It elevated us up from the engineering department to the executive suite. An engineer can now point to why his need or her need to have a piece of software could link back to value creation and an executive could talk to how they can drive revenue or save money by embarking on these strategies. So that was the second point. Lastly, I was- well, Hold on really quick on yeah. that. So was that your creation? And were you CMO at the time? I was. So was, and that was something that you just saw. You're like, there's this white space that there is no playbook for this. We're going to create it. I mean, how did you- did you pitch that to the team and just say like, hey, I need X amount of dollars to create this? Like, what did that, what was that like? Yeah, so that was, so it's a great question, actually, <laughs> because I was effectively coming in from outer space as it related to how they used to do business. Yeah, I mean, this seemed like, there, with all due respect, it seems like the marketing guy just brought in a idea that makes no sense. <laughs> like, like, Yeah, so the company had, you know, in the days of CAD, you know, them doing really well, what they basically did is they showed the product. They just did quote unquote demos. Yeah, demos. Yeah, right? sure. Numbers of demos times numbers of reps equals deals closed equals forecast equals like revenue projections. That's how it was when they owned the market. Yeah, sales driven approach. Exactly. To, yeah, sure. But now we were at, now we were going to be operating in a different at a different level and we needed currency in the form of information that would provide value to our customers. And so we retrained, and this is, it was like, I got a lot of first level resistance to this notion of this like consulting, consultative sale, this approach that, I mean, literally the value roadmap was a roadmap. It was a big giant blueprint, a physical piece of paper that we would pin up on the wall but when people gathered around that, like when customers came into our briefing centers and we had these, we trialed this and trialed this and trialed this, 
and a few of the sales reps who knew how to be consultative salespeople like Mark Cranny, whom I'm now working with, right? He took that and said, wow, this is creating massive opportunities and big, big spend. I think it's a it's a brilliant insight because and it's funny back in the day I used to use a similar roadmap for when I was working with companies building these like diversity initiatives and veteran hiring programs and stuff and it's like you have to put their journey in uh, you know like we are humans are linear like thinking we know what you know how to look at time and in, in a straight line and say we are here and it's an easy comparison to your competitors are here. And if you want to get to, you know, this goal, the end of the rainbow here, there's a bunch of steps that you have to do. And if you can simplify that so that they can explain it to their executive team, then it's an easy way to buy you just because that's the thing that gets shared, right? They take that asset, that that sales asset, and they show it to their boss and go, this is where we are on the journey. This is where we need to be. These are the steps we need to do. And oh, by the way, the product that you're selling is, you know, step number four on that journey. That consultative approach, it is a way that clarifies and makes it easier to buy. And if marketing is making it easier to buy, you're winning. That's right. So we work very closely with the sales operations team. We retrain the sales force. You know, PTC had a great sales model. Like they had the five steps, right? Yeah. And the problem was they had no content, right? They had no, they had no value to add to the conversation. What are your strategic initiatives? The executive would start to talk about them. And then we say, let me, let me show you the demo. Like there was no correlation, but totally. now they had that. I, I just want one more quick thing on this. There's a fine line between like listening correctly and the consultative like approach to that. And the best sales reps are going to be able to blend both of those two things together because you have to listen to the problems to make sure that those are the problems that are then on the roadmap. And if they are, then it's like, oh, are you like this company? And I think that that's one of the things that you only learn those insights as a marketer by sitting with the actual customers and listening to what they're saying. Because if you don't, then you don't know what to put on the roadmap. You're just guessing wildly. That's exactly right. Uh, so my first 30 to 45 days at PTC, I spent on the road. So I went out on the road with our the head of software who's job title A changed to chief product officer, given that we were saying it was really important to have one. That's great. He's now, by the way, the CEO of the company. Always knew that was going to be the path for him. And I went on the road with the CEO and I went on the road with some sales reps. So I spent a lot of time with customers and prospects in those conversations to understand why this idea is percolating, right? So the, the head of the software products had a fantastic you know, 72 slide deck on what our new product strategy was going to be. But if you had 75 minutes and he was delivering the presentation, you know, you would probably have a good chance of succeeding. But I had to now institutionalize that in a way that was unique. And so what we did is we went out and we did market research, not just my own conversations, but we canvassed the market and we were very specific about the kinds of questions we were asking that would feed back the language that we needed to put into this value roadmap. And so when customers actually read the content in the value roadmap, it was their words. It was their language. And by the way, if we did it right and we said, now here are the critical capabilities you need, it was a way for us to actually determine our own product roadmap because we just determined like what the paths to value were. 
right, for a company. So, and then we took it one more step further and we did the maturity model and the assessment, like you said, where are you on your journey? What's the next logical step? And then to complete it, we then did ROI analyses on all of that. So at my last company, Sprinkler, we took that to a, you know, to an even further level. So we, you know, we created the digital insert customer first transformation system of models. And we had a value model, we had a maturity model, we had an ROI model, we had an operations model, we had an architecture model, right? So we like, we had the whole surround sound and we created a group that would go out and do workshops with customers. So McDonald's, you know, had a war room with the value roadmap that became their value roadmap. And they brought teams together that had never worked together before. They didn't even know each other. In, inside the company, you mean? Inside the company. That's crazy. To determine what their, you know, their plays would be. And that's one of those, that's another great insight that is so counterintuitive, right? Like you want to bring more stakeholders in, <laughs> you want to bring more people into this, but then you realize that, especially in enterprise, the more stakeholders that you have that buy in, the stickier your product becomes, right? And the more that they want to continue using that thing, like it's a, it's a double-edged sword. That's really interesting that they, anytime where you're introducing sections of the company to each other, it's a good place to be because that means that uh, you're helping them communicate in a way they haven't before. I think the other tool that a really good marketer has, especially someone who's actually come from the consumer world of marketing, like like I had, yeah, is the ability to relate to the, the end user and to actually put all of this into human terms or tap into human emotion. So our stated corporate goal at PTC was to get a chair at the big table. There was ERP, there was CRM, there was supply chain, and we wanted this product development thing ultimately called PLM to have a seat at the table. So what I had to do was in addition to creating the content that was the playbook on how to win, I had to market the space. What did that mean? It meant I had to actually market the fact that products mattered. And so we invited analysts to a three and a half hour meeting where we laid out this entire strategy. And when they walked in to the meeting, they were greeted by a series of posters. One of them was a picture of a Christmas tree with presents underneath it. And it said, children don't wake up on Christmas morning in the hopes of unwrapping a CRM system, <laughs> right? There was a picture of a motorcyclist, you know, on a biker with tattoos, you know, Harley Davidson tattoo on his arm. It says, an ERP system never inspired a tattoo. Like it's the product stupid, right? Yeah. So. We sort of rallied the industry around the fact that products mattered and could create value. And here's the playbook on how to do that. You know, we talked about category creation on a few different episodes in Marketing Trends, one of them with Christopher Lockhead, who wrote Play Bigger, or co-authored Play Bigger. And one of the things that we talked about was this idea that if you do your job right, if you really do your job right with category creation, someone's going to have the job of the category that you're creating. Right. And like, that's exactly what you did. Right. Is like people then became chief product officers right. because of the evangelizing that you did around the fact that, hey, this is the person who is going to be buying our product 
And this is the person that needs to exist in the world. And this is the belief that we have. So there should be a human being that's in charge of this at your company. Yep. And so then it's ironic that I went from like the product as hero to then moving into Sprinkler in New York, which which was effectively a social media management platform. Yeah. And what was why was capturing consumer sentiment right on social media important is because they were telling you how they felt. Yeah, and I mean, that's that was the big I mean, it was the big thing that I think everybody missed about so people still miss about social media. It's not a pushing platform. It's a listening platform. It's like, that's the best thing about it. Yeah, it's a listening platform that then should be able to help you engage differently yeah. or engage in a more personalized, individualized way. So what we did is we elevated the capturing of that information to what ultimately has now become customer experience. And so today... Another job title that people Another have. job title, right? Today, it is positioned as a, as a leading customer experience management platform because the experience that you have, that I have, that all of us have with a brand actually determines how we feel about that brand. 100%. I mean, go ask an airline, right? Like go slide to the DMs of your favorite airline and, and check out what, what is being uh, communicated with them. Exactly. And now people are communicating, like, especially, you know, millennials and younger, you know, they don't like they're tweeting at companies like that. They're just, they're DMing them, as you say, like, it's how they correspond and people, you know, big companies weren't set up for that. No, why? I mean, why would you go to the website? It, it, you just think about it. You're like, why would I go to an airline's website to go do a complaint when I can do it in public? I mean, I'm not saying uh, I'm not out here like, you know, flaming airlines on Twitter or anything, but I understand the sentiment. If you, you know, it's a very personal thing. If the thing that you just paid money for to do one job to get you from blank to blank doesn't get you there on time. It's a very emotional kind of moment. So where are you going to take that out? You're going to take it out in public so that everyone can share the experience of you missing your flight. Yeah, which is why today most, and even in B2B world, most people get their information from uh, sources other than that company, right? And most people get recommendations from people other than you know the, the company itself, right? Before they actually engage. And the other thing that makes experience really the new brand is switching costs are so low and it's just so easy. I mean, I was telling you, you know, today I, I punched in Lyft. I'm loyal to, you know, Andreessen Horowitz's investment in Lyft and use them all Love the time. Lyft. But I've also got Uber, right? And you have one too many bad experiences where drivers, you know, cancel the ride and, you know, something strange happens. You have one too many of those and boom. I just open up Uber. I think that the rise of, I, I mean, I think we're just very, very early to this idea of like these commodities being these type of th giant technology companies that built, you know, the unicorns, the multi-billion dollar companies that might wake up in five years and realize that there's commodities all around them. And I think that the, you know, there's a few really big companies that are like that now that 100% realized that you could create the technology that they have pretty much in an afternoon at this point. And so they focused 100% on customer experience. That's right. And, and the cost of software is so, you know, relatively inexpensive and the time to start up is, is a lot shorter than it ever used to be. 
and all all the capabilities are right there, including the most sophisticated technologies. So that leads me to you know answering why I'm at where I'm at. So open source has helped effectively uh, the world become software enabled. PTC was about product is important, and yet Sprinkler has said, well, it's actually the experience you have with the product, but the product that you have the experience with today is a digital service, right? It's an app, right? It's online. And so if software is determining the success of your business, then who's monitoring the software that determines the success of that? So we make the software that monitors the software that companies use. We monitor that in real time through this streaming analytics platform uh, architecture that is highly unique and highly scalable. And we work with you know major brands that have to have to perform in real time. And so we're able to allow them to see if there's a problem in a second and where that problem is so they can roll back code or they can scale up you know part of their infrastructure. And what that does is it allows the developers who got into the business not to fix stuff, but actually to create stuff, to create new stuff. And so the Amazons, right, the Apples, the Alphabets, the Netflixes, they're all using all of this new microservice-based technologies because they're able to innovate at rapid pace and, and also course correct, you know, as they as they go along. And so we've created the, the, you know, the platform that basically every company can rely on to effectively run their business. And one of the things I love, you know, Signal affects your website. I don't often talk about websites on Marketing Trends, although maybe we should more because it's a pretty fun topic. It's, it's really one of the, I mean, it's one of the most important, you know, it's your digital storefront, you know. But you have a great website and it really shows the different segments of terminology that you're clearly going after. Cloud native journey. What does that look like? Where are you on this? A solution designed for every stage of the cloud native journey. Having the white papers or the uh, the lead magnets that are there that people can download, the use cases, all that stuff. I, I think that all website, a lot of, I shouldn't say all, a lot of B2B companies have websites that kind of seemingly look similar now you have like the top bar you know the product solutions you know resources sort of stuff companies jobs all that but i think what's really interesting is how you use the terminology in these things and it goes beyond just the website how do you look at that terminology those things those decisions to put certain terminology that we just kind of discussed that the three things that you've spent in your career into your marketing resources, into where you're focused on this belief that this is the future that we see in, in the world and how this product can help shape that. Uh, so we, we spend a lot of time listening, right, to what the market is talking about, in addition to what our you know, folks are, are thinking about, because we're in many cases ahead of where the market is. So I'll give you an example we just published two white paper ebooks, right? One on serverless and one on, so monitoring serverless and one on monitoring uh, Kubernetes. There's massive demand for the monitoring Kubernetes one relative to the monitoring service, serverless one. And we're just like, we actually have these internal, like the two product marketers that, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. 
that, you know, pen them, you know, there's this like challenge going on. You need to put more money behind this one. Right. But, but we're just watching, you know, how one is, you know, really outperforming the other. And it's just because there's today at least more demand and the need to make sense of what this Kubernetes thing is all about and how do I, how do I overcome some of the barriers that other people have already encountered? So it's, it's really functional relative to the other one where there's just less demand today. Then you now, then it's like, okay, you can market to what people are looking for today and you need to, but you also, if you want to be seen as a leader, you need to get ahead of that. And so at the AWS reInvent in Las Vegas, massive event, 50, 60,000 people, our CTO, who was part of our founding technical team, came out of Facebook where he built the first monitoring platform that enabled them to move fast and break things without screwing up the business. Yeah. Right? Like a real thought leader, a real, you know, technical leader. He had a 60-minute talk on uh, service mesh, which is now like the next, it's like next level. Yeah. And it was one of the highest attended events at reInvent. So like people go to these events to learn and he was talking about something that was that was where people knew they needed to get to and they were really curious about it. So not only was the room that he was in, you know, overflowing, but there were six other rooms that they set up, you know, with big monitors for yeah. people to watch it. And it's it's a really hot topic. I mean, I think that this is one of those interesting situations too because I think the sometimes marketers will look at both of those two white papers, for example, and say, well, this one's not working. Um, or for, for example, the, the talk that you were giving that was, that was highly attended, that's like way out in the future, right? Or people that's like, oh man, I want to know what's cutting edge. I want to know what's coming down the pipe. But then there's the people who are in a moment in their buyer's journey where they actually just need to go learn about serverless, for example. So it's a utility to buy rather than something to be cutting edge to, to talk about that. And I think that learning what those use cases are is one of the takeaways there because just because something gets 10 times more downloads or something gets shared on social more, it's like, yeah, every single headline that says, you know, Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg or Jeff Bezos gets shared all the time, right? Or Sheryl Sandberg or whatever it is. So it's like, just because it is winning in that way doesn't necessarily always mean that thing. How do you look at engagement for your assets and things like that? Because I think it's something that is really challenging for marketers to look at and measure. You bring up a really good point again. And and this is, I think, a lesson that I've certainly uh, learned and one that I try to apply and one that I've seen uh, other executives and and particularly marketing people fall trapped to. And that is you over-rotate. Right, it's really easy to over-rotate to something that seems to be working or that somebody in the organization is clamoring for, especially if they've got some, you know, some juice, as it were. Right. So a marketer will it's like student body right, student body left. And what that does is it creates some schizophrenia. Yeah. If you will, you know, with, with the brand. You have to be able to know there's a purpose for what we're doing. Like there's a purpose for that serverless white paper. There's a purpose for the Kubernetes piece. There's a a purpose for everything that we're doing. Uh, And they will serve the purpose in different ways. 
and the value that they will contribute isn't necessarily in terms of numbers of downloads. It's effectively what was the path to effectively a deal, right? A relationship that was either enhanced from an existing customer or a new one that where that piece played a role, where there was a demand for that piece of content. And so we have really good attribution tracking software that enables us to see all of the touch points in a customer's journey from everything that we do in marketing, specifically everything, every place we show up, every piece we put out there and what was consumed by the, those people at that company and every interaction that a salesperson has. And so we know like all of the touch points across an entire customer uh, journey that led to a deal or led to an upsell in an existing one. And that helps us an awful lot as we look back. Okay, before you get out of here, I want to talk about this idea of overcoming noise. And that was we started to touch on it a little bit there and, and previously when you were talking with like market education. How do you look at positioning, noise, and things that things that go beyond page one of Google and uh, this general kind of like, hey, is my name out there stuff? Uh, noise is a very real problem. As consumers, we live with a lot of noise. We're constantly tethered, you know, to devices and different applications, and we read and consume a, a lot of information. And, and the challenge of standing out amidst that noise is one that everybody has. So I would say that the way to think about it, and obviously we can spend more time on it another time, but is is to ask yourself the question: Am I contributing to the noise? Or am I able to rise above it and help make sense of things for people such that they actually want to hear what I have to say? And do you think that specifically when you are this challenger brand, and we're going to have you back on the show because this is just great stuff. So we'll talk more about noise and challenger brands uh, in an upcoming episode. That's teaser, teaser for the audience because <laughs> um, it's been awesome. Do you think that, I think one of the things that's tough is that when you're an entrant, and you're trying to beat the incumbent or take market share or just bring something that is new and differentiated. We all know confusion equals no sale, but sometimes you're just kind of sounding confusing. How do you like look between that noise and confusion levels? I think noise creates confusion. And I think generally anytime there's anything relatively new, there's bound to be confusion. And the reason there's confusion is because different people are saying different things. And so it's hard to it's hard for you to know what, what to believe. The hallmark of a, of a challenger brand is basically saying, actually, we have a different point of view. So at PTC, it was like, hey, you know, again, children don't wake up on their birthday in the hopes of unwrapping a CRM system. It's the product that matters, and here's proof of that, right? Or at Red Hat, it was like this open source thing is here to stay. It's just, it's just better. Like we were born in the sense of freedom, right? Why should we be held back? So you, you have to stand for something actually important and then you need, you need to back it up. I love it. All right, let's do some lightning rounds. Thanks to our friends at Pardot for being our amazing sponsor of the show and for giving us fast and easy software, just like the lightning round, questions that are fast and easy to answer for some of the guests. But I'll not take all. your word for that. First question. 
What app are you using on your phone that's the most fun? Instagram. Favorite one day getaway in the Bay Area? Yountsville. Who? Good one. We haven't had that one yet. What ad campaign have you seen recently that you're most envious of? Well, I always, I just love the work that Nike does. So good. Yeah. Do you have a favorite book or podcast that you've read or listened to recently that you like? Um, I, we talked about this. Uh, well, maybe we talked about it with your partner. Um, I'm reading a variety of books. The book that I'm currently con- reading is called Conspiracy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk about Silicon Valley's influence on, right? That's a crazy story. Yeah. It's really crazy. Oh, and also shout out Eating the Big Fish, which you brought into studio, which is fun. And I have not read and I'm going to check it out because this is really exciting. Yeah. Adam Morgan uh, is the author. Eating the Big Fish is the name of the title. It's it's how challenger brands can compete against brand leaders. A lot of really good stories. I worked with Adam believe in what he's all about. So. Yeah, that'll be the uh, the homework for the audience to, to check out this book. And then we'll uh-huh. talk about, we'll go super deep dive on uh, on challenger brands in a future episode. What thing are you most excited about for the future of marketing? The ability to actually know what works. That's like in, there was so much of, well, half my budget works and the other half, I'm not sure. Like, so being able to actually track back the last board meeting we had, it's like, it was really clear what we were doing well, where we need to improve, makes a big difference. Best advice for a first time CMO? Spend time with the sales team, get out, meet your customers, and don't always necessarily go with your first idea. You may be reacting to something, just test it, percolate it. And that's why if you have an idea and it's percolating and having those conversations, you're actually gonna get the answers from the marketplace. I love it. Thomas, you're the man. Thanks so much for hanging out. We'll have you back soon. This was great. Any final stuff uh, before you go? No, I just I just want to tell you that you guys are doing a great job here. It's really impressive. You're filling a great void in the marketplace. Um, it's been a pleasure being with you. Thanks so much. And find him on the Twitters at Thomas Buda. We'll link it up in the show notes. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Marketing Trends. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot. World-class B2B marketers use Pardot to generate and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI at every stage of the sales cycle. Empower your marketing team to become revenue-generating superheroes and let Pardot's data analysis keep an eye on the bottom line. Learn more by visiting pardot.com podcast or click on the link in our show notes. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, 
The messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.